Last week, Elmo broke the internet. Yes, I said Elmo. <laughs> she knows what I'm talking about. The Elmo from Sesame Street. He broke the internet with a tweet, and this is, this is all it said. Innocently, he just said, and I quote, Elmo is just checking in. How is everybody doing? Well, this tweet soon went viral and took over X, formerly Twitter, and the responses were one part humorous, three parts really depressing. They were almost exclusively negative. Here are some of the responses, and I've sanitized them. Uh, Elmo, I'm tired. I'm suffering. Why'd you have to make the streets look fun and inspiring? The world don't like us, Elmo. The world is burning, Elmo. Another person, very dramatically, said, Every morning I can't wait to go back to sleep. Every Monday I wait for Friday, every day and every week of my life. One guy humorously summed up the collective responses by saying, Oscar was right. <laughs> Oscar the Grouch, for those of you who did not grow up on Sesame Street. I'll end by sharing one person's analysis of the situation. She said, we started this year, started it by trauma dumping so hard on Elmo, the official Sesame Street account had to tweet out mental health resources. God help us. Now, I recognize that social media is not always indicative of broader society, but in this case, I think the, the responses were so uniformly despairing, I do think this is an attitude representative of America in 2024. And I think this because I also hear these things in the real world as I talk to people and as I talk to people who work with people. We hear these same things, even in wealthy, buttoned-up, respectable towns like Medfield. And the question is, why? Why is there so much sadness and despair in our world? I think it's because the world recognizes intuitively, by design, that we were created to be joyful. And the world searches for joy Desperately. But the world searches in vain, either because it is ignorant of the source of true joy, or because it has rejected the source of true joy. And so the world despairs. Well, dear friends, amid all the despair, disillusionment, distraction of our burdened and disappointed age, Jesus has really good news. The bad news, of course, is that you cannot have joy on your own terms as the world is finding out. The good news is that you can have joy on Jesus' terms, now and forever. So let's dive into our text today and we'll talk about that joy. Look at the first eight verses of chapter 15 with me. I, this is Jesus speaking, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, 
and I in you. As the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as branches on the vine which is Christ. We pray that you would nourish us with your love this morning. Speak your truth to us through your word. Conform us to his image. Make us like Jesus. Empower me by your spirit to proclaim the excellencies of your word and give us ears to hear. We love you and we praise you and we stand before you on account of your grace alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I'd like to begin with a thought exercise. I want you to imagine that you are one of the 11 remaining disciples and Jesus is leading you and you walk into a vineyard. This is actually quite possibly what's going on right now in the text. At the end of chapter 14, Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. It's possible that they're currently exiting Jerusalem and possible that they're actually walking through a vineyard. We can't know for sure. But you've walked into a vineyard and Jesus takes the opportunity to explain the relationship of God with his people using a metaphor that you can understand, that of a vineyard. I also want to note here at the outset that Jesus here is speaking to the eleven, to his disciples. He's not speaking to the general public. And he's asking the question, what does it look like to abide or remain or continue in his love as a disciple. So Jesus here isn't speaking to the non-Christian per se. He's not explaining how to become a Christian. He's explaining how to abide as a Christian. So if you're not a Christian, I'm really happy you're here. This text can help you understand what it would mean for you if you became a Christian. But becoming a Christian only happens when you believe Jesus' words to you. And that's what he means in verse 3 when he says, You're clean because of the words I've spoken to you. Because Jesus brought his word to his disciples, they believed, and so they became followers of Christ. For us, we hear the word of Christ that Jesus is God, that he came to earth to save us from the penalty of our sin, which is the eternal wrath of God, that he shed his blood in our place on the cross, as Greg just pointed out to our children. And that in his blood we can be forgiven. That he was uh, raised from the dead and now he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty interceding for his beloved brothers and sisters. And we hear that word and we believe and we become Christians and we repent of our sins and we follow Jesus Christ. This passage is not concerned with becoming a Christian but living as a Christian. This passage is concerned with following 
So let's break down the characters of our metaphor this morning. Uh, In the Old Testament, God repeatedly uses the metaphor of a vineyard to describe his people. Israel was the vineyard of God. We saw this in Isaiah 5, in Ezekiel 15, and in Psalm 80. God planted the Israel vine in the promised land, and he demanded fruit of it. And so Jesus is picking up on what was already established in the Old Testament. And he is at least saying this much in continuity. The people of God are still the vineyard. But what was only foreshadowed in Psalm 80, and I'll let you go back and read that, has now become clear in Christ. The vineyard is the people of God, but Jesus himself is the vine. This should blow your mind, right? We've been talking in these catechism questions, God The Son of God became man. He took on flesh. He identifies with humanity. And without losing his divinity, Jesus took on a human nature. And thus he can say to us who are his people, I'm the vine and you are the branches of the same vine. We have been united to the eternal Son of God, the creator of the universe. That's wild. So Jesus is the vine. We're the branches, and as in the Old Testament, God, the Father, is the vine dresser or the gardener, however you'd like to put it. Now, before we move on to explain the rest of the metaphor, I want to pause and consider the purpose of the vineyard. I'll say that again. I want to consider the purpose of the vineyard because when we think about the purpose of the vineyard, we'll understand the rest of what we're talking about today. So, two years ago, my wife and I ordered two pear trees that cross-pollinate from an online nursery, and we planted them in a sunny spot next to the parsonage. Now, we had a sunny space that needed to be filled, and we could have put a lot of things there, bushes, a patio, flowering trees. But we planted pear trees. Why? Well, in our case, we were after the fruit. Because there's not a more delicious fruit in the entire world than a tree-ripened pear. Thank you. David and I will fight you if you disagree. So the question then... Okay, i got to say, that's not in the Bible. That was the opinion of man... Why did the Lord plant for himself a vineyard? Let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 5. This is God speaking in the Old Testament. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved, that's God, had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield wild grape sorry for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes why did the lord plant the vineyard of israel he was looking for it to produce fruit to yield grapes why did the lord plant the vineyard of the church why did he redeem sinful jews and gentiles call us to himself fill us with a with his spirit and fill our hearts with his love and adopt us into his family and build us together into a dwelling place for the holy spirit why are we the vineyard of god 
Well, look at verse 8. Look at our purpose statement here. Jesus says this, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Why did he plant the vineyard? Because God is glorified in us when we are a fruitful vine. By being fruitful, we prove to be his disciples. This is true of the universal church, and this is true of this particular vine called FBC Medfield. God planted us here in Medfield not to live for ourselves, but to be fruitful, to glorify God. And I want to be clear about this because this is not American popular religion. This is not taught in even most churches. In American religion, God basically exists to serve you, give you meaning, and grant your every prayer request. But Jesus helpfully reminds us here in this metaphor that God is the vine dresser and we are the vines. God is the creator and we are the dependent creatures. And God has expectations of his vineyard. He expects it to be fruitful. You say, okay, pastor, then what does it mean to be fruitful? I'm going to leave you hanging until our second point. Let's keep going. So let's consider how Jesus presents the whole metaphor. Uh, and I want to note here that the metaphor is found in verses 1 to 8, and the explanation for the metaphor is found in verses 9 to 17. So right now we're going to be concerned with the what. We'll get to the why. Jesus is the vine. God is the vine dresser. Every branch which is fruitless, he takes away. That's verse 2. Why? Because he planted the vineyard for the purpose that it would be fruitful. But note what he says next. He says, every branch that does fruit... He prunes. You say, what? That sounds painful. Why would he prune the successful branch? Well, at the parsonage, there's a lot of gardening metaphors today. At the parsonage, <laughs> getting a lot of amens from the farmer. Uh, at the parsonage, we also have blackberry bushes. And in late summer, after they fruit, these blackberry bushes send up new spikes. And these new spikes will be the part of the bush that fruits next year. Now, at the end of the summer, we cut back all the dead growth. Why? Because it's not going to fruit again. And we set it aside. But we also prune the new growth that's going to fruit next year. You say, why? Because when I cut back a single spike of the new growth on the blackberry bush, in its place grow two, three, sometimes four new spikes in place of the one. Which means that I've just increased my yield of blackberries two, three, maybe even four times. I've multiplied the yield. Jesus says that's why the Father prunes the fruitful branches. Look at verse, verse 2. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. I think this is what the author of Hebrews is getting at in Hebrews chapter 12. What does it look like when our Heavenly Father prunes his vine? He says, besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. 
Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we might share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but what does it yield? What does the pruning or the discipline of the Lord yield for his children? Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So God's pruning is often painful, but it's a sign of his love for you. And by it, he makes us more like Jesus and thus more fruitful. And so when Jesus in verse 7 and at the end of our passage in verse 16 tells us to be praying to God, to be, to be asking God and that God will grant our prayers, he's asking us to pray in his name. I think what he's asking us to pray is that we would be glorifying God with ever-increasing fruitfulness. Dear friends, it is a dangerous and wonderful prayer for you to go home tonight and pray, Father, make me more fruitful. But it's a wonderful prayer. So look at verses 4 and 5 with me. Jesus is essentially saying this. He's the vine, we are the branches. The vine nourishes the branches. The vine makes it possible for the branches to bear fruit. If you sever a branch from the vine, it will not bear fruit. But if a branch is connected to the vine, then by its very nature, it's going to produce fruit. It cannot help but produce fruit. This is why Jesus' command to the disciples in this is to abide in him. Abide means remain or continue. So he's saying, you're a branch, stay that way. Remain on the vine. Depend on the vine. Find your nourishment on the vine, which is Christ. If Jesus is the source of our fruitfulness, dear brothers and sisters, we'd be wise to abide in him so we can be fruitful. And in being fruitful, we would glorify God. But Jesus also offers us a warning. He offers a warning to the unfruitful branch of verse 2. And we'll close our first point with this. Look at verse 6. He says, if any person doesn't abide in him, the branch that's been taken away, the branch is thrown away, and it withers. Why does it wither? Because he has been cut off from the source of life. If you cut a branch, no matter how thick and beautiful it is, if you cut it off from the vine, it will eventually wither and die, and a fruitless branch is of little use to the gardener. That's the hard truth here. God expects fruit, God demands fruit, and God enables fruit. But when he does not find fruit... The branch, the person who does not abide in Christ, has no use but to be tossed into the fire as fuel. And I'll be clear, in the metaphor, that's hell. God's place of judgment for those who refuse to bow the knee to his son. And just so we're clear, this has been the message of the entire Bible. You could go back to Isaiah 5, when God comes to the vineyard... 
He says, I looked for righteousness, but I found bloodshed. So the fruit was righteousness, but instead he found bloodshed. He said, I looked for justice, but behold, an outcry. And so in the rest of uh, Isaiah 5, God talks about uh, ripping down the walls of the vineyard, uh, filling the wine vat, withholding rain from the vineyard, and letting it be overtaken with weeds. In Ezekiel 15, the vine is tossed into the fire because it's good for nothing else. You see in my backyard in five years, if my pear trees are not producing amazing pears, I'll probably cut them down. Uh, and I'll use the wood in my smoker. Pear trees aren't that beautiful to look at. Uh, I have a particular purpose for them in mind. There are other trees that I could plant for their flowers. But the purpose of my pear trees is to produce fruit. And dear friends, God planted his vineyard that we, who are the branches of the vine, might produce fruit. And in producing fruit, that we would glorify God. God is at work for his own glory, and he has certainly given each and every one of us the freedom to reject his calling on our lives. But let there be no mistake, there are drastic consequences for rejecting Jesus. Okay, Pastor, but you said this was a sermon about joy. The world is despairing. Jesus offers us joy, and you still haven't defined for us what it means to be fruitful. Well, let's keep reading because Jesus is going to explain a lot in verses 9 to 17. Pick it up with me in verse 9. This is the explanation of the metaphor. <clears throat> As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. As we come to the explanation, we're going to look at verses 9 to 11 first. In verses 9 to 11, Jesus wants us to understand what it means to abide in him or remain in him? How does the branch remain connected to the life-giving vine? He begins with the gospel truth. Verse 9, as the Father loved me, I've loved you the same way. And so we're remembering that our existence as Christians is ultimately due to God's love, period. 1 John 3, 1, see with what great love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love 
with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. That is a wonderful, wonderful truth. It is the love of God that made us a branch on the vine. And Jesus loves you, and God loves you, and that's the reason that we're on the vine. And when we stop thinking about God as some kind of cosmic genie there to serve our purposes, and we start recognizing him as the transcendent sovereign creator and ruler of the universe, the fact of his love for you should absolutely blow your mind. It's remarkable. So Jesus has called us to abide. What then is the nourishing sap of the vine? It's the love of God in the love of Christ. Which is why he clarifies the command to abide. He says, abide in my love. It's the love of God that made us who we are in Christ. And in response, we are called to then abide in that love or remain in that love. So how do we abide? Verse 10, let's read it. 15.10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So I want you to notice these mutual truths going on here. Last week, we saw in verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And we talked about how the Holy Spirit enables that to take place. But now he gives a complementary truth. If you obey my commandments, you will abide in my love, just like I do with the Father. So we understand that our obedience is a consequence of God's love for us and our love for him. Or in other words, the vine nourishes the branches. And the complementary truth is our obedience is how we abide in his love. It's how we stay attached to the vine. It's how we're fruitful and act out our nature as a branch on Jesus' vine. The love of God makes us a Christian and we choose to abide in the love of God by obeying the commands of Christ. Now, perhaps some of you theological snobs out there, and I mean that as a compliment, your ears are pricked, and you're thinking, Pastor, are you describing works righteousness? Are you describing salvation by obedience? I'm not, if you're worried. That's not what I'm talking about. We're talking about not how to become a Christian, not how to be made right with God. We're talking about what it looks like to abide in the love of Christ. And that's obedience. Uh, if you go to Ephesians chapter 2, which is probably the most explicit passage I can think of in the New Testament, dealing with salvation by grace, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, you'll see it says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then you get to verse 10, and he says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, why? For good works. Obedience. The good works that God prepared in advance for us. So this obedience, these good works, are a response. Response to the love of God. And it's how we abide 
and the love of Christ. Now, I'm finally getting to joy. All right, here we are. Jesus concludes this idea by showing us that abiding in him, which means obeying him, leads to our joy. He says that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. It's like that old cheesy hymn that I used to sing as a kid. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Wait a second. They must have known what they were talking about when they wrote it. Now I want you to leave your finger on verse 12 with joy because we're going to come back and really dive into joy at the end. But I want to finish what Jesus is, is saying here. So he said that we abide in him when we obey his commands. Well, what does it mean to obey his commands? Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Dear friends, Jesus gave a lot of commands when he walked this earth, and we have a lot of commands recorded for us here in the Bible. But what Jesus is saying with this new commandment, which is an intensification of an old commandment, is this. That all of the commands can be summed up under the singular heading of love. Your love for God, Jesus says, will manifest itself in a love for one another. In a love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you say, to what standard? Well, Jesus gives us the standard. This is, this is incredible. This is what Jesus is saying. Love one another as I've loved you. How has Jesus loved us? Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. If you're in Christ, Jesus loved you so much, he went to the cross and he did not have to. He shed his blood for you. He was humiliated for you. He was whipped for you. He faced the wrath of God for you. He gave everything for you because he loved you. And so he turns to those of us in Christ and he says, love one another. All the commands can be summed up in that one command, to love. Not with squishy definitions of love that the world gives us, but love sacrificially, as Jesus did. This is actually what it means to bear fruit. I finally got to it. What is the fruit that the gardener is looking for in the garden? Right here. It's love. When the Spirit produces love in the body of Christ. Say, so how do I know? Okay, look at chapter 13. Go back. Chapter 13, verse 34. We uh, looked at this a few weeks ago. Jesus said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. That sounds familiar. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. How are they going to know that we're his disciples? If you have love for one another. Go back to chapter 15. Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Well, how do we prove to be his disciples? By loving one another. The fruit is 
love. I was on an airplane this week, and uh, it was a long flight, and I watched the new Mission Impossible, which is fantastic, by the way. And there's a scene where there's this girl who's kind of been working for the good guys, kind of not, and she totally blows it. She acts selfishly, and there are really bad consequences. But Tom Cruise's character shows her grace and actually incorporates her in the last bit of the mission. But she's afraid, and she says, can you guarantee my safety? He says, no. And then the next part, I was like, I can't believe they said that. He says, but I can guarantee this. Your life is more important to me than my own. I was on the airplane. I was like, wow, preach it. I know you're a Scientologist, but that was Christian right there. <laughs> yeah. Where were we? Jesus laid down his life for us, and he calls us to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus goes on, and he says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. What's the difference between a servant and a friend? The word there could also be translated slave. The servant is commanded and receives no explanation. The friend of God is commanded, but Jesus is saying, I'm telling you what I'm doing. I've brought you into the inter-Trinitarian fellowship that I had before the world was created. A few years ago, I was at a, a conference together for the gospel, and I saw someone that I knew, actually Matt and Greg were with me, and I went to, to go say hi to him. Uh, he was the guy who was doing the music for like 10,000 people. So I, I went to say hi to him. He's like, oh, I don't have a ton of time. Why don't you walk with me? So we, we go walking with him, and then um, and we, we're talking, and we're catching up and all of that. And then we end up in line where all the conference speakers are in line, and they're heading in to, to grab lunch or dinner. I don't remember what it was. But we look around, and there's John Piper, there's Mark Dever, there's Shylin, there's H.B. Charles, there's Kevin DeYoung, and I start to feel very proud of myself. I'm like, yeah, boys, you hang around me. <laughs> I've got connections. These are my friends. And it was pure luck. We kind of do that. We, uh, if we know someone important, we'll name drop. We have a certain pride when we know we have that friend. But guys, that doesn't even compare to being a friend of the God of the universe. <laughs> Jesus Christ has not just called you servant. He says, I call you my friend and my brother or my sister. That should fill you with joy. And it probably filled the disciples. Like, yeah, I know the eternal son of God. I'm one of his apostles. And Jesus is like, I'm going to cut you down to size with the next verse in verse 16. Very graciously, he says, oh, by the way, you didn't choose me, though I chose you. You remember when I came up to you when you were fishing, and I said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men? He said, I chose you, and I appointed you. Why did Jesus choose them and appoint them? So that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. 
so that whatever you ask in the Father's, ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And he reminds us, what is that fruit? Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. I told you I'd come back to joy. I'd like to return to that for a moment. When a pastor says a moment, he means 20 minutes. I began by describing for you a world that longs for joy, seeks for joy, but cannot find joy because it searches in all the wrong places. And so our world despairs for lack of joy. Now, as Americans, we love our freedoms. We love our rights. Give me liberty or give me death. And so we're inclined to believe that our joy is to be found in the freedom to do exactly as we please. And when you leave church on Sunday and you enter into the mission field, you are being bombarded with messaging that promises joy. And maybe it provides a short-term pleasure, but it steals long-term joy. You're being told to follow your heart, to be true to yourself, live out your truth. These are all code words for promoting selfishness. These are all statements that call on you to pursue your own happiness by pursuing selfish desires. You, you see, in our day, obeying God's commands is actually seen as the opposite of joy. We see the commands of Scripture and are, we're being trained to think that God wants to limit my freedom and prevent my happiness. Why would God care what I do with my money? Why would God care what I do with my time? Why would God care who I sleep with or what gender I choose to present? The commands of Scripture are seen as joy-killing drudgery until, until you actually embrace them. And then you find that in obeying God, there's fullness of joy. Do you know why? Because God knows you better than you know yourself. God designed you. And he designed you to find your joy in him. Some of you are grandparents. Have you ever noticed that grandparents love to spend money on grandkids? It's like it skips a generation. My parents, <laughs> my parents never spent money on us. But whoa, the grandkids come and all of a sudden we're just forking out the dough. <laughs> when Aria was born, we went down to Florida and my mom was so excited she, she bought a stroller and she was determined she was going to take her for a walk on the beach. When I saw the stroller, I noticed that it had very tiny, hard wheels made of hard plastic. And I said, Mom, that stroller is not going to push on soft sand. That stroller is not designed for the beach. It's hardly designed for the sidewalk. You might have some luck at an indoor mall with that stroller. <laughs> Undeterred and confident, she went for it anyway. And it went, as you might imagine. My mom, for, I don't know, 15 minutes, pushing this little stroller, trying to make it go, dragging it through the sand, and eventually giving up, picking up baby and stroller, and walking back where everyone else was sitting. And I did not say I told you so. 
What's the application? <laughs> That's us. That is us trying to have joy on our own terms. Rejecting design and insisting that we know better. That is us looking for water in dry and cracked cisterns. That is the real drudgery. Ignoring the design and trusting in ourselves. And when we do that, we find despair. And not even Elmo can fix it. God has called us, his vineyard, to be fruitful. That in being fruitful, we'd glorify him. And the reality is that each and every one of you has a choice. You can live for God's glory and obey his commands. Or you can live for your own glory and pursue your own joy by pursuing selfish ends. Satan wants you to think that pursuing God's glory and pursuing your joy are two mutually exclusive pursuits. Jesus, in his word, is telling you that they are a single pursuit. That to pursue God's glory is to find your own joy. That as you pursue God's glory, by obeying Jesus' commands, particularly the overarching command to love one another, that you are filled with the joy of the Lord. God wants you to find your joy in being like Jesus. I just had lunch with a guy this week, and he said, I love being in a church where I can serve because when I serve, I'm filled up. That's what Jesus is saying here. <laughs> you bear fruit that glorifies God, and when you obey Jesus by loving one another, when you love one another in sacrificial ways like Jesus loved us, Jesus puts his joy in you so that your joy is full. For the Christian, true joy is not found in seeking worldly joy, but in loving one another in sacrificial ways. The mom who watches another kid's mom, another mom's kid when she's sick. The family that brings a meal to a family with a newborn. The older man who helps a new homeowner with absolutely no skills whatsoever fix a leak in his basement. <laughs> the single girl who goes to spend time with a widow. The mature believer who takes time to mentor a younger believer. The person who takes time to teach kids in the church about Jesus. The Christian who's been blessed by God and is generous to the church. There are countless ways to love one another in this wonderful vineyard called the church. There are wonderful ways to bear fruit. And when we do so, we glorify God and we're filled with the joy of Jesus. The most miserable people in the world are those who live for self. Just think of the most selfish people you know, the Ebenezer Scrooges of this world, and ask yourself, they've given themselves everything their heart desires. Are they happy? But this happens with Christians too. There is an egregious Misery experienced by Christians caught in an ensnaring sin. The person who knows what it is to obey the commands of Christ, to love one another, the, the one who's tasted the joy of the Lord, who knows that God's way is the happy way, and yet they don't want to let go of the sin that promises joy but really steals it. This is every Christian at one point or another. 
when you fall into sin, when you do, you need to remember that this sin is preventing you from experiencing the joy of Christ because it's preventing you from being fruitful for God. The metaphor of the vine and the branches is there for your joy. The expectation of fruit is there for your joy. The warning of the withered branches and the fire is there for your joy. And the sweet sap of the love of Christ is there for your joy. At the outset, I described a world desperate for joy, but finding despair. As Christians, we know where joy can be found when we love one another. And when we love one another, we let the world know that we are his disciples. And we create a compelling community of joy. And when we love one another, we can go to the world drowning in despair and call to them, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Come find your joy, not in seeking to serve yourself, but in loving Christ by loving his people.